Hi, welcome. This is Yolanda, and I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're on page 185 of chapter 21. And the subheading is A Publishing Venture. I am still using my magnifying glass, so bear with me if I lose my place. And I hope you enjoy the words of Joseph Smith III. A publishing venture. At the April conference of 1879, there was received into fellowship by baptism Edward W. Tullidge, a writer and historian of some local reputation in Utah and the Western country. He was an Englishman who had been engaged in publishing the Western Galaxy, a magazine devoted to the West, its literature and its people. But it had met with misfortune, mainly due to a lack of wisdom and discretion on the part of its editor, which alienated his friends from him. He wrote a biography of Brigham Young and then one of Joseph Smith. In the latter work, he included some material, he included some matter which incurred the displeasure of the leading authorities of the Utah, the Utah Church, and its sow was proscribed. He brought it east with a view of selling it, so some publishing house, I think it's meant to say to some publishing house, expecting to make such modifications as might be deemed necessary to a successful canvas and sale outside of Utah. Some of the officers of our church examined the work and believed it would be a judicious move on our part to purchase it and its copyright, add a portion of our own history and issue the book from our own publishing house. Accordingly, a committee composed of Brethren Rogers, Blair, Banter, Blakesley and myself was appointed to consider the project and, if found advisable, make the purchase and arrange for publication. The examination was made and the details arranged. Mr Tullidge revised what he had written. Some additions were made, including a chapter written by myself. Plates were secured an addition, and an edition of several hundreds of volumes was printed. Numbers of copies were sold, but it happened that shortly after the Herald Office removed to Lamoni, 1881, the book began to meet with some of the leading men of the early church, including Joseph and Hiram Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford, Woodruff and a number of others. The friends of the book, among whom I, number, I was numbered, defended it as stoutly as discretion would warrant, but did not prove strong enough to stem the tide of opposition against it, the justice of which I do not now admit, admit or deny. Not choosing to continue what seemed to be a profitless discussion of the merits or faults of the volume, the effort to accomplish something with it was abandoned, and the plates and unsold copies were left upon the shelves of the publishing house, a total loss. A number of the books are doubtless extant in the hands of those who purchased. It is possible Elder Tullidge's failure to reform himself 
and be useful to the church together with the unsavoury reputation he acquired might have had something to do with our men feeling it unwise to sponsor the production of his pen. He had lingered among us in Illinois for several months after his baptism, was ordained and preached in quite a number of places. Then he returned to Utah where he endeavoured to revive his former magazine and to prepare for publication some further works. In this effort he was to be assisted by one James T. Cobb and other writers of the West. Some of his friends rallied to his support and their contributions with some subscriptions to his magazine furnished a meagre sum for the project. Upon one of my visits to Utah, I went to his office and found him at work along with Mr. Cobb in the interest of his publication, but he had unfortunately, as I discovered, become too careless in the use of intoxicants. I had supper with him and his family, but left him with the sad impression in my mind that he had fallen away from his former standing and standards, and so far as the church or religion could effect a reclamation quite irretrievably so. Among his irregularities was one transaction in which he had borrowed money from Joseph F. Smith with the understanding that a full-page likeness of Hiram Smith, father of Joseph F., should be inserted in his book. Instead of keeping to that agreement, he divided the allotted space between likenesses of Hiram and Joseph, which gave cause for t complaint. After he united with us, the church authorities in Utah, headed by John Henry and Joseph F., effectually stopped every intellectual or business enterprise in which Tull Mr. Tullidge engaged. They proscribed the, the sale of his works, and the community generally refused to support his publishing ventures. This may have been one cause for his spiritual discouragement. Who shall say? He fell into evil habits, neglected his wife, and permitted her to seek unwise companions, which resulted in her becoming a charge upon the community. He himself died the death of a drunkard, the date I do not now remember. I made some efforts to ascertain the fate of his widow and the two or three children. I believe he had, but my inquiries proved fruitless, for I never learned what did finally become of them. This seemed another case of a naturally gifted and fairly intelligent man going wrong. Next heading, A Good Woman Passes. I think we know who this woman is going to be. On April the 20th, 1879, I received a message informing me that my mother was very ill. I started for Nauvoo at once and remained at her bedside with but few and brief intermissions until April, 20, uh, April 30th when, in the presence of her husband, Major Elsie Biderman, my adopted sister, Julie M. Middleton, my brother Alexander and myself, she quietly breathed her earth life away and her worn frame sank to rest. Excuse my pause, um, quite emotional. As she turned her face
can gaze upward. Her last words were, yes, yes, I'm coming. As if she saw or heard someone beckoning or calling to her. The news of her passing spread throughout all the branches of the Nauvoo and String Prairie districts. And then on the 2nd of May, with numbers of relatives gathered about us, and in the presence of a large concourse of citizens of the town and community, we performed the last sad offices for our beloved parent. The services were in the care of Elder John H. Lake, who shifted the responsibility of delivering the sermon to Elder Joseph A. Crawford, a man who had obeyed the gospel in northern Missouri, had grown rapidly in the work as preacher and officer, and quite generally pleased the saints of the district. His sermon was carried out from the text, If a man die, shall he live again? And proved to be a much finer discourse than from a study of the man's physiognomy. I can't say that. Physiognomy? <laughs> I had been prepared to expect. I was glad to have a worthy address at the buyer of so excellent a mother. Her remains were conveyed from the Riverside Mansion or Nauvoo House across the street to the old family burying ground located on the premises where she had come to live in the spring of 1839. A refugee from the uh, persecutions of Missouri. There on the hillside, in a grave sorrowfully prepared, we laid her earthly tenement away to await the call which shall come to them who are worthy of resurrection. The families of Aunt Catherine Salisbury from the eastern side of the county and of Aunt Lucy Milliken from near Colchester were present at the obsequies. Five of my cousins, Solomon J. Don C. Alvin and Frederick V. Salisbury and Don C. Milliken together with Elder D.D. Babcock and of Montrose performed the service of pallbearers. Of these six, all but Alvin and Elder Babcock are living, the latter passing away but a short while ago at Holden, Missouri, as I believe. My mother had endeared herself to the entire community. To those within her reach, she had ever been an unfailing source of comfort and assistance in all the varied troubles to which ordinary households are subject. As the long stream of people passed by her buyer, there was often noted the silent gaze of sorrow, the gently falling tears, or the touch of living hands upon those folded in death, all mute testimonies of the love and appreciation which had been cherished for her in the hearts of her friends and neighbours. I recall one moment when Mrs. Wright passed by. She was the wife of J.C. Wright, whose family were members of the old church, though he had assumed the role of unbeliever and scoffer at all religions. This woman, who had been a silent sufferer for many years, occasionally came to our services and frequently visited my mother. 
As she passed along beside the casket, she reached out. Her ungloved hand laid it tenderly upon my mother's cheek and bending down, kissed her on the forehead, whispering with falling tears as she moved on. She was the very best friend I ever had. Tears had already been flowing freely, but this simple tribute of genuine grief added a new impulse to the weeping, as others freshly realised that their own loss realised their own loss and the loving ministry of the departed saint. I remained in the city long enough to arrange for a stone to mark her resting place, and then returned to Plano, there, in response to the request of many, on June 15th, was held a service in her memory. Elder Mark H. Foskett delivering the discourse. In our church history, I recorded the tributes which were paid my mother by the current press. I'm just going to add my own words here. I think the reason why I'm so emotional is that I am a Latter-day Saint that was baptised into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and we didn't reverence Emma Smith she was treated as an apostate and after reading the words of Joseph Smith III and reading the actions of um, of the prophet since Brigham Young, I feel very sad for the treatment that they received, and especially Emma. And uh, I'm just heartbroken that the church continues to kind of shadow her name darken her name by by insisting that she knew about polygamy that she allowed her husband to be polygamous that her husband was polygamous and all of this stuff and it's all absolute rot and there will come the day that it says everything will be known from the rooftops all truth will be known nothing will be hidden and um i just want that time to just hurry up i mean it is happening already it is happening i mean we've got we've got all the information on the internet we've got smartphones we've got information that i'll touch rather than before when you would have to search it out but but um their names need clearing and you know and need honoring i just wanted to share that with you thank you let's carry on Sketches of her life and a recital of the influence it had upon the history of the church, both in the days of her husband and those of the reorganisation, 
may also be found in those volumes. She was a noble woman, loyal and true to her best womanly convictions, one who despised hypocrisy and oppression and loved truth and sincerity. To her I have dedicated this book of memories, and if it shall in any small degree serve to enhance the beauty of her life and influence or to express a modicum of the appreciation and love in which she has been held by her sons and those who know knew her best i shall be happily grateful in view of the dedication mentioned in the important relation these memories may bear to her life and influence i desire to insert here the following extracts from the heralds of the period deeming their inclusion quite proper and of interest this writing is small again so bear with me as i try to read it we returned home on the 6th from nauvoo where we have been watched watching by the bedside of mrs emma biderman our loving and loved mother we have waited in watchful expectation for the end which came at 4:20 in the morning of the 30th of april when she breathed her life out gently and slept at last in peace on friday may the 2nd neighbors friends relatives bore her remains to the place where our relatives lie there we left them where on her grave the gentle dew and genial sunshine the storm and the calm shall bless her repose until with others that sleep she shall rise to the eternal newness of everlasting life dated may 15th 1879 we publish elsewhere in this issue the obituary of the widow of joseph smith the martyr the elect lady as she was termed in a revelation in the doctrine and covenants this obituary appeared in the nauvoo independent on may 9th from which it is taken it was received too late for insertion in last issue. A commemorative sermon will be delivered in the Saints Chapel in Plano, Sunday, June 15th, by Elder Mark H. Foskett, while sermon will be published in the Herald, June 1st, 1879. Obituary. Mrs. Emma Biderman whose departure from this life on April 30th we notice in our last issue was the daughter of Isaac and Elizabeth Howe and born in the town of Harmony, Susquehanna County, Pennsylvania, July 10th, 1804. There's a note at the bottom with a star. In the Nauvoo Independent, this date appeared erroneously as 1803 and was later corrected from family bible records initialed aa she remained an inmate of her father's house until january the 18th 1827 when she married joseph smith the founder of the mormon church as it is usually termed it is stated that Joseph Smith stole her away from her father's house and married her against the advice and wishes of her friends. 
But whether this is true or not, it appears that after her marriage, her father relented, as fathers usually do, and the runaways returned to her father's farm, where they remained for some two or three years. From there, Mrs. Smith removed with her husband to Palmyra, New York, and from there to Kirtland, Ohio, where she was a constant participant in the busy scenes of the church's prosperity and exodus from there. During her stay in Kirtland, her two sons, Joseph and Frederick G.W., were born, of whom Frederick died in Nauvoo in 1862. From Kirtland, Mrs. Smith went with others to Missouri, living with her husband first in one county and then in another till the mobbing in 1838. Then her husband, having been taken prisoner and lodged in the Liberty Jail in Ray County, she, with the great mass of the Mormons, was obliged to leave Caldwell County and the state of Missouri. She arrived at Quincy, Illinois, where she and other refugees from violence were kindly received. Here, some six months after her capture, his capture, Mrs. Smith was joined by her husband, he having escaped from the custody of his guards and going from liberty to another county, ostensibly for trial. Not long afterwards, they settled on the Hugh White farm below Commerce, in the building now standing opposite the Riverside Mansion on the west. During the five years from their first settling here, Mrs. Smith bore her part in the toils deprivations and sickness incident to the settling of a new country. Her son Alexander was born in her stay in Missouri and another Don Carlos was born in Navo but died in his infancy. Her husband Mr. Smith was killed at Carthage June the 27th 1844 and Mrs. Smith remained in Nauvoo during all the troubles attending the expulsion of the Mormons from the state of Illinois. Except for the brief time between September 1846 and February 1847 when with two or three families she sojourned at Fulton City, Whiteside County. This state... Her youngest son, David Hyron, was born November 17th, 1844, a few months after Mr. Smith's death. Mrs. Smith was keeping the mansion house, so long the principal hotel of the place, during the year 1847 and here became acquainted with Major Lewis C. Biderman, one of the new citizens as they were called and on december the 27th 1847 she was married to him the reverend william hannah brother to the celebrated reverend dick hannah of the me church officiating in the marriage ceremony mrs biderman raised her four boys and an adopted daughter now mrs julia middleton to maturity all of whom except frederick before named now mourn her demise she was the companion of her first husband for eighteen years and shared his fortunes during the fourteen years of his active ministry passing through scenes of sorrow and trouble that tested her character to the extreme 
and she won the esteem of all. She was the wife of Major Bideman for nearly 32 years and proved herself a worthy companion. She was mistress of the mansion house, with the exception of two or three short intervals from its erection in 1843 till about 1847. When the building fell into the hands of her sons, Alexander and David, and she and her husband removed to the Riverside Mansion in a part of what was known as the Nauvoo House on the river bank at the foot of Main Street. She was loved and respected by all her neighbours for her charitable and kind disposition. She was a good and faithful wife, a kind and loving mother, as the expressions of her children and associates verify. If such a record as she has left does not render a person worthy of a better life beyond, it is difficult to conceive how it can be done. The body of Mrs. Bideman was laid in the parlour of the mansion where she resided on the morning after her demise and in the evening of the same day was placed in the burial case where it was constantly watched by Mrs. Middleton the inmates of the Major's house and a few intimate friends until the afternoon of Friday, May 2nd at 12. Um, the friends and relatives of the deceased began to arrive and at 2pm the hour set for the service. The rooms were filled and a large number in attendance who could not find entrance stood at the open doors to listen. The services were in charge of Elder John H. Lake of Kukuk, Iowa, the sermon delivered by Elder Joseph H. Crawford of Burnside, and the singing in charge of Elder Richard Lambert of Rock Creek Township. There were six bearers, five of whom were nephews of Mrs. Biderman, sons of sisters of Joseph Smith, her first husband. Four of these were brothers, Solomon, Alvin, Don and Frederick Salisbury. The other nephew was Don C. Millican and the other bearer, Elder D. D. Babcock of Montrose. After the services were over, the large company filed through the room past the coffin, viewing the face of the deceased as they passed. It was a touching sight to see those citizens so long acquainted with the silent sleeper while she was living. Pause beside her to take a last look at the peaceful face, so calm amid the grief of the assembly. Now and then, one to whom she had been dearer than to others would caress the extended hand or gently stooping lay a hand upon the cold face or forehead, some even kissing the pale cheek in an impulse of love and regret. But scenes of grief must pass, the family at length took leave of her, whom they had so long known and loved. The coffin lid was put in place, the six bearers raised their burden reverently, and with the morning train passed to the place of internment upon the premises of her oldest son nearby, where, with solemn prayer and fervent prayer, the remains were left to their long repose. repose. The assembly was large. Almost everyone knew Mrs. Biderman, some intimately and for many years, some but for a few months. 
but it is safe to say the respect, esteem and love with which she was regarded by all is but a just tribute to the sterling virtues of the woman, wife and mother, whom the community so soberly, so sadly and so tenderly laid away to rest on this beautiful May day by the side of the father of waters, the mighty Mississippi. Mrs. Biderman was a member of the reorganised Church of Jesus Christ for Latter-day Saints and her funeral services were conducted by elders and members of that body of believers. The sermon was indicative of their hope in the millennium yet to come. At its close, Elder Lake paid a touching tribute of love and respect to Mrs. Biderman in a few words expressing her faith and hope stated to him by her but a few days before her death. Taken as a whole, the funeral was remarkably impressive and tenderly sad. Nauvoo Independent, May 9th, 1879. Recording thus the incidents of my mother's death and burial, it may be of interest to state that the year following, Alvin Salisbury, one of the pallbearers at the, her funeral, was killed in a political quarrel at Fountain Green by a farmer between whom him between whom and himself there had long been hard feelings. A trial was held at which it deemed it seemed difficult for the jury to determine whether the act had been murder or one committed in self defence. Alvin was a very large man and of immense strength. Witnesses said that in the controversy he made a motion as if to reach out for his antagonist. The latter, a much smaller man, through fear that Alvin was known to be a violent, of a violent disposition, drew a knife and struck a blow on the head, the blade sinking some two or three inches into the brain. Alvin's mother, Aunt Catherine, possessed to a considerable degree the faculty known among the scots as second sight once in a dream she had seen this son killed and she often counselled him to be on his guard against his own quick temper and to strive earnestly to gain a mastery over his high strung spirit i must not leave this reminiscence concerning my mother's passing without recording the fact that some citizens of Nauvoo expressed their opinion that I would not be allowed to bury her in our private burying ground without interference. It is true there was a law in existence requiring internment in a public burying ground unless permission to do otherwise be obtained. I waited upon the mayor at once and told him that I proposed to bury my mother on my own premises, near where the body of my father, her husband, rested, as well as two of her children, and a number of other members of her family. I stated that I would risk the consequences in so doing. He commanded my resolution, and my plans were carried out without interruption or interference. That's the end of chapter 21. Thank you for listening.